0: So welcome to episode 20 of the Oxfordshire Teacher Training Podcast. I'm really, really thrilled to be sitting down this morning to talk with Anita Devi all about special educational needs and disability. Um, So you may well have come across Anita's book um, in the Essential Guides for Early Career Teachers that um, we've had a number of guests on recently. Obviously, our very own Sally Price and Patrick Garton have produced ones on well-being and on behaviour. And uh, if you haven't listened to those episodes, do go and have a listen to those. Um, But today we're focusing very much on um, some of the amazing work that Anita's been doing and how we can get ourselves thinking about what does it mean to be an effective teacher um, of all children, but particularly children um, who have special educational needs and disability. So, Anita, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Matthew, and Happy New Year. Now, there is so much for even the most experienced teachers to know and understand and digest when they're thinking about SEND. Um, But obviously, for people who are um, mentoring or training um, as uh, associate teachers, trainee teachers um, at the moment, um, what kind of stuff, how much training do you think trainee teachers should be given on special educational needs and disability and inclusion um, at this stage?
1: I think it's a really great
0: question Matthew
1: and yes I you know send is um, complex it's complex because there are many different facets to it and there are many different stakeholders but actually it can be made simple and I think you know when we've worked and thought through about how we support trainees and what you call associate teachers through this process it needs to be paced and structured it's not about giving them the the information, but creating an experiential opportunity or journey for them to understand some basic concepts that they can apply in their classroom practice and continue to grow and develop as they grow through their career. You know, we have to remember that they're at the start of their career. And for me, the priority in that first year of their training, if they're doing the the one year program, is their high quality teaching. That's what they need to nail, because if you look at 1.24 in the Code of Practice, page 25, for me, this is the cornerstone of the Code of Practice. High quality teaching that is differentiated and personalized will meet the needs of the majority of students in your class. So, for me, it's about them understanding what is differentiation, what is personalization, what is their structure for a classroom around routines, um, their classroom management, all of those kind of aspects. And then if they have that sustained and really rooted and embedded, they can understand what is additional to and different from when we move into SEND. And I think too often we try and move into the additional to and different from without first establishing a really firm
0: foundation. Yeah, that's so important and um, if, if you haven't listened to an episode I'd, I did with Tom Bolton when we were talking about um, effective teaching for vulnerable pupils, um, Tom's saying exactly the same thing. It's all about that really high quality teaching for, for everyone um, has such an impact. If we're thinking about the, the kind of the, the fundamental concepts that underpin good practice to support SEND in the classroom, um, and we think particularly about how you've approached that in terms of um, your book for the, for the Essential guide series, um, Perhaps can you just talk us through how you approached it and what, what you did?
1: So I think, you know, when I lead training, I often ask participants, are you if you, were, if you were to land in an alien city for the very first time, would you want a street map or an overview map of the whole place? And and we're all different. And some actually like the street map. They like the details. They want to know where they are and, you know, from that level. I'm someone who actually likes the overview map. And so I started from this perspective of let's have a framework. We need a framework within which they can position this. It's not new. It was something that came out in 2004. What we have done is refined it in a way that actually makes sense, not just to um, staff and those working in a school, but also to parents. Because actually, we, a lot of this is about language. You know, if we've got different stakeholders. They're all seeing the same situation from a different lens. And the more we can simplify the language and make it so explicit and transparent. So we start with a basic framework of high quality teaching and then we build on the additionality. We talk about the four areas of need. And, those, and, and in particular, I have always, um, from when I was a SENCO classroom teacher, Um, and in other roles, looked at the four areas of needs as overlapping. So that we begin to see that it's, because actually that's a bit of a data collection bit, you know, their primary need and their secondary need. Actually, we need to look at the child as a whole. So we talk a lot about that whole child. We talk a lot around child development. And I think this is an area within teacher education and SEND that often is missed out. We need to know how we expect a child to develop in the first place before we can start to see that, is something not happening? So all of those things kind of come together. And I think where I've worked extensively with ITT providers and IT providers, it's about enabling trainee teachers, associate teachers to ask the right questions. That's the key. If you ask the right questions, you'll get to the right answers. And if we see SEND and identification as a bit of an investigative process, then, if we write, ask the right answers, we will get to the right place. We need to understand their need, and then from that, what's the provision that needs to be put in place? So we break it down into the simplistic aspects, and that can be quite um, in the classroom as well. I'm an I'm NCIS fan, and uh, you know they'll often put out a bolo. Don't know if you've come across that phrase. It's a very American phrase, but it's be on the lookout. And you know, when I work with learning support assistants. I'll actually say be on the lookout, and I'm giving them something very specific to look out for children and looking at patterns in their um, behaviours and their learning behaviours to get an understanding of what they need. So I think it's about being, you know, not... The law exists, and I know that we have within the SEND sector, many who will say the law trumps it all. The law is important, it's a legal framework. But within that, we need to have a practical and pragmatic framework. And the law doesn't change lives. Um, I could drive a car. I, dr- I started driving many, many years ago. Yeah. At that time, I learned the highway code. I knew the symbols and I passed my test. If you presented, with me, presented me with some of the more obscure symbols now from the highway code, I'm not sure I'd be able to identify them. But I know how to drive and I can be safe on the road. And so I think what we've got to understand is how do we make it practical in the classroom? It's not just about giving lots and lots of information, but I think it's about, again, I keep coming back to securing high quality teaching and then building upon the additionality.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you so much for that. And it's it's that's something I know that uh, lots of people who are training with us um, every year, but particularly this year, um, as we've we spent so much of it online, they they really value that sense of thinking about the practical as well as thinking about the the theory behind it. We we need to know we need to know the de- the detail up to a point, um, but we need to know how we can actually put that into practice. So um so maybe let's just have a little think about um some some of the specific aspects that we can think about. Um, in terms of putting things into practice. And so um, if we're thinking about, let's think about communication and interaction. Um, what, from, from a practical point of view, if you, you're thinking about what you were saying earlier about, about how it's really important for um, somebody to be thinking about, well, what do I need to know that that would I'd expect to be in place, but then what, so what, what am I looking at for those differences? So we're thinking about communication and interaction. Um, and the particular difficulties that um, a child or a young person might experience. What kind of things do you think um, we should be thinking about, maybe from a point of view of a mentor helping to point out for somebody who's um, working with an associate teacher this year or for the associate teachers themselves?
1: So the first thing is to recognise that learning doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's an interactive process. There's a piece of information that's provided by someone and communicated to someone else. That resonates and is added to and developed and you know, um, manipulated in some ways with other information and it transforms into another piece of information and that cycle continues. And if you think about, you know, if we were to step back and look in a classroom, that's what's going on. Information is being passed and acted upon and changed and manipulated and shifted and, you know, creatively adopted. Um, So, so if we understand that, that's one key that, you know, recognising communication is a key part of the classroom. So for mentors and for associate teachers or trainee teachers, what is your communication like in the classroom? Sometimes one of the observations I do when I go into classroom is I record how much time was teacher talk and how much time was student talk. Something very simple because as teachers, we like to talk Mm -hmm. and we struggle with silence. We struggle, And I don't mean, you know, everyone sit down, be quiet kind of silence. I mean, if there's just a thinking zone, a quiet time of thinking zone, I think sometimes people feel they have to fill that. But actually, we need to give young people and children the space to express their ideas. So how much opportunity are your children, young people getting to talk about their ideas, maybe in pairs to start with, and then you move into a four and an eight and the whole class, you know, if you're struggling with, if they are struggling with confidence in that area. So I think that's the first thing. I think also be very aware of how much communication goes on at home. Um, I've taught predominantly in um, areas that are socioeconomically deprived. Many of the children, I was the last person they spoke to at the end of the day. And I was the first person, again, they spoke to the next morning. Very little communication at home. Um, you know, I'm talking about families who don't sit at a dining table, and have dinner together. Um, we, we, you know, we had some um, eight-year-olds who were still sitting on the stairs having finger food, never actually sat at a dining table. So the, the concept of having conversations wasn't part of their background. So be aware of the home life as well and encourage that. Then there are on the communication trust, there are some milestones, um, documents around what we should expect in terms of language development. And those are a great way to kind of bark off and they're right from primary to secondary, early years or way up to secondary, to see what our expectations should be around their language. They're not diagnostic. They are simply to understand this is what I should be expecting now. Some of it might just be to lack of exposure. So the classroom could be used to model good language. You know, if the, if the child comes back with one word, maybe repeat it back, adding a word in or turning it into a sentence. Not kind of putting them down, but saying, yes, that's right. He did have his dinner. So rather than if the child has just said dinner, expanding it out, giving those those opportunities. If you know, though, you've got children who've got specific communication difficulties, think about how the learning environment can be adapted to ensure that they can still participate within that and contribute in whichever way they feel comfortable so that they can communicate their learning too. Um, You know, I I think... Many years ago, there was a you know, when there was such a strong emphasis, uh, more so than now on this whole assessment. Children who struggled with communication were often seen as not being achieving, not achieving, Mm. you know. And, And when I talk about communication, you've got the spoken word and the written word, and I know that comes into cognition as well. But you know, if they couldn't write down what they were, what their thoughts were, or they couldn't communicate, it was seen as actually they've not achieved the the, the standards or what, you know whatever the levels we were looking at, but that isn't true. actually, the issue was they couldn't communicate it, but in cognitively, you you know there were different ways that you could elicit have they understood the purpose of this lesson, Have they understood the learning outcome So I think it's about first and foremost knowing your environment are you actually and opening it up to a communication aspect um, and, in, and and as much as possible, what is the home environment? What should you expect and how do you model? I think those kind of things would enable. Obviously, in the book, we go into a lot more detail. Um, There are four main systems involved in the production of speech. Um, There are many different types of speech language communication needs. And sadly, it is one of the most top areas of need in our country and has been for a very long time. You know, Back in 2010, when we had the, um, the Hello campaign and the Communication Trust came into being, that was galvanised 50 organisations around communication needs. If you look at the data, we haven't moved on. And we are sending young people into the workplace with very poor communication skills. Um, and it is a concern. And I, you know, I've been into some schools. So there was an all-through school that I worked with um, in London and their key stage two results were brilliant absolutely brilliant but as soon as they got into the secondary part of the school something wasn't quite working so I went and did some observations in the primary school and what I noticed in the primary school is the learning environment was very much heads down get on with your work so yes they were brilliant on paper but they couldn't talk about it they couldn't interact they couldn't take on someone else's ideas and adopt it and argue then debate and all those kind of things that we want to happen But when they got into the secondary sector that's what was expected that you know you debate your ideas you kind of present your ideas you listen to other people's ideas you challenge other people that's what we you know and if you think about how they progress through into further on beyond gcse's a levels and into university it is about that conversational criticality and debate isn't it that we want them to be expressive of that so i think you know i'd say right from early years right from you know reception year one create opportunities for class speak learning speak
0: brilliant brilliant fantastic um now you talked a little bit there about um about cognition and in the book you talk about the link between cognition and learning and and um and trying to make making that difference by deconstructing that learning process um very briefly um do you want to just talk a little bit about about that i mean obviously Worth definitely worth reading about this in, in much more detail in the book, but but um, that link between cognition and learning.
1: Yeah, so I've come to the conclusion I've like yourself, Matthew. I've probably I've seen quite a few different um, Ofsted frameworks over okay. the years, and the one thing I've I've come to the conclusion that whatever framework we're using to determine a good or outstanding school, there are two things that really um, I think for me determine an outstanding school you know if you move away from the detail one is that there is a language for learning across the school mm. we all talk about metacognition metacognition is the ability to talk about your thinking you can only talk about your thinking if you have a language I mean if I was to ask you right now I want you to think in Persian I'm pretty sure you'll say to me I can't I don't. I'm taking a bit of risk there I'm um, yeah. assumed that you don't know Persian the Persian yeah,
0: language absolutely so,
1: I can't expect you to talk about that. No, I haven't given you a framework, exactly. and I think learning is the same. We need to give children a language for learning, whatever that might be. There's no right or wrong about some of this. You know, some people use learning pits, some have used learning gems, learning powers. Then there was um, oh, um, building learning power. You know, all these different ways of actually. Articulate the language. Articulate the language of learning so that everyone has a common language across the school. That's the first thing. The second thing that I think makes an outstanding school, um, and, and Ofsted will probably think, "Oh, I haven't thought about our frameworks like this before," but is teachers within the school have a model for learning, and there's they may have a different model each, and that's okay. I do believe every teacher, whether you're experienced or coming into learning, you need a model for learning. You need to understand how do you think children learn? Now, there are some of the, the classics around. You've got Vygotsky, you've got Bruno, you've got Piaget. or you know, some of those who, who theorise this. And we do, I do talk a little bit about that in the book. But I also encourage teachers to have their own model for learning. How do they think children learn? And I do this with trainees, and I get them to write or draw it however they feel comfortable, and it's really for the first time they sit and think, wow, we are in the business of learning. Mm -hmm. And that is what is our fundamental core is about learning. When you have a model for learning, whatever that looks like, um, you can then understand the blockages or the barriers to learning. And, I mean, I'm also partly Montessori trained. Um, You know, Montessori would talk about the, the blank uh tabula you'd have in the early days we had this um rather strange um model where it was about do you remember pouring pouring the knowledge into children yeah. you know that, that teachers were the font of all knowledge and they were pouring this in. Now in even if you go with something as simple as that which i don't necessarily agree with i have my own model but i'm going to just show you how this works if you're pouring and it's not going in there's a problem and so what your role is to find the problem. Is it the angle that you're pouring? Is there no water in the jug? Actually, you put the wrong things in. Is there a, is there a barrier on the, the jug? Is there a barrier going in? You begin to unpack where the problem is. And so having a model for learning, OK, helps us identify children's needs. And at a very basic level, what I talk about in the book is you have a sensory input. Of some sort, because actually, if you think about what teachers are doing when they're communicating knowledge, and the curriculum is a sensory input, and the the teachers that are effective have a multi-sensory modality, whereas some just rely on one or two sensory modalities. So that's for teachers to think about how much of their broad breadth of sensory modality they have in the classroom. That information is received by the child, and there is seven aspects to cognition that take place around attention, around language, around um, memory, and all of those things interacting together. And then there is an application that leads to mastery. And then we go back around because of the sensory. And that's a continuous loop. And so we're building on previous knowledge and we're adapting knowledge um, and refining it so that actually what we learnt. Say a few years ago, we would develop further. Mm. If so, that would be my my encouragement to teachers, trainees, and you know mentors. Actually, before you sit down with your trainees and your, um, you know those you are mentoring, what is your model for learning? Do you have one? And if not, go and go and define
0: it. Yeah, so important, so important, and and in fact, one of the great things about being a mentor is. Giving yourself that that time and and that focus to think about you know okay so what 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 is my model and that, how how do I do that and I, I know that you know my experience of you know when I when I'm, I'm sorry, mentoring again this year having not mentored last year and I'm thinking really really carefully about certain things so so I know for me um, a, a huge part of my my model is about trying to think about misconceptions in terms and and thinking about pupils learning uh, my favourite moment of teaching in the last twelve months. Um, was just before lockdown when um, I was teaching a lesson and a child, uh, I said to the children, I'm going to do something and I'm going to do it wrong on the board. And somebody straight away said, I know what you're going to do. And I said, well, I haven't even done anything yet. He said, I know that you're going to do, and then explained exactly what I was about to do. And I said, yeah. well, why do you know that I'm going to say that? And they said, because that's what some of us might be thinking. And, um, and this person was then able to explain really, really clearly um, that that um, many of us might have might think this is what this is what could go wrong, and of course, what then happened was that everyone then got that bit completely right because they knew and they'd been thinking about how they, how they were doing all that so so important. Oh, what I like
1: about that example is yeah. you've used communication so effectively in that scenario yeah. to, to draw out from the pupils, yeah, their ideas and their thinking, and that's exactly what I meant around. You know, learning doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's a communicative thing. But the other thing I just wanted to draw on before we move on is if we pull these two together, so if I kind of model a typical mentor conversation, let's say I've got a trainee and the trainee comes to me and says, I'm really concerned about these three children because they're not making the progress I'm expecting them to make. As a mentor, I could sit down with them and say, okay, let's look at what you do as part of your high quality teaching. So make sure that's secure. And secondly, tell me your model for learning. And where do you think the barriers are? And you just pull those two together in that conversation and you will be enabling them to ask the right questions. You'll be modelling that to them to kind of say, well, if I pull these two things together, that's actually how I kind of can connect those things. So I'm doing this in my high quality teaching. I know that's good. That's fine. So that's secure. I can tick that off and deduction. That's not the issue. But then, OK, so here's my model of learning and I know it's not the sensory input because we've done all of this and I know that if I give them certain structures they're able to apply it so actually there is something much more and then you begin to then investigate deeper about what's going on and that's how a mentor can model two trainees using those just just those two concepts brilliant
0: brilliant Brilliant. really really helpful now um those, those regular listeners to our, our podcast and those who know Oxford t- Oxfordshire Teacher Training well will know that that um, one of our core areas of our curriculum is, is well-being. Now, you, you write about social and emotional and mental health um, in your essential guide, Anita, and um, you, you've included a number of practical ways that we can imp- implement this in the classroom. So I just wonder whether we can perhaps just briefly maybe look at, look at one of these. And I'm going to try and thread this in, in a way, in thinking about... Um, you know, so at the time that this, this one's first going out um, um, as a podcast, um, it's the beginning of 2021. Um, everyone's got absolutely everything crossed that this is, this is going to be a year that sees us, um, you know, hopefully seeing the back of, of the pandemic. But we've had this extended period of time where um, lots and lots of children, um, as well as obviously lots of adults as well, but particularly um, thinking about here today, lots of children really finding... Um, Particular challenges are around um, learning and their experiences, and of course about their their social, emotional, and mental health. So, I wonder maybe if we can have a little think about maybe what you've got in the book, but also um, is there anything else that you've you've been um, thinking about since the book's come out?
1: Yeah, so in the book, um, we've deconstructed the trans model of health. And um, I found this particularly really useful because it talks about four domains and there's autonomy, sense of us, control and agency. And if you think about this year, all of those aspects have been shifted, moved back again, shifted again. It, it, you know, it, it's been and, and I, you know, I know we talk about the new normal, but I think within education, the new normal is going to, although we were the one of the first to go back to some sort of face to face, I think the new normal will take a long time mm. because, We are a progressive system, you know, we we will continue to grow and the children have missed out. And there's there's a whole raft of things that will continue to almost unpeel themselves like an onion over time. Um, I did a a radio program with a mental health specialist, um, I think just in early September. And one of the things we were talking about is that whilst, you know, lockdown is now an internationally understood phrase and language concept what it means to each of us varies considerably and so i talk about the the um, spectrum of experience during lockdown so at one end you have a very positive experience and at the other end you have a very negative experience and different reasons will determine you know what's positive you know it might be about where you're living the opportunities you've had the time you've had with loved ones all of those things negative might be around Also, where you're living, the experience you've had with love. So exactly the same. Or it could be loss and bereavement. The majority of us, I would say, like the bell curve, though, are in the middle. And so we're experiencing dual modality of this has been a positive experience on so so many levels, but also very challenging on a number of levels. And we are still trying to make sense of that in our minds and in our emotions. Mm. And one of the things that happened during lockdown is that we lost a sense of agency. We, you know, if you think back to March lockdown one, there was no question about it. This is how it is. And for many, they've never experienced that kind of a lifestyle, that level of, you know, um, and, and but it had to happen because from a leadership national perspective, that's what needed to happen. We also, so we lost control of our social spaces and navigating those social spaces and Coming back into friendships, we're going to have to re-establish those relationships. You know, in the office, you will have office banter in the, in the school. You know, schools that have opened, a lot of them are saying to me, we're still not using our staff room because of social distancing. So there isn't the banter that you get. We're going to have to re-establish relationships. We've missed chunks of people's lives. So we don't always understand their new lens that they're coming from. We're going to have to recreate a sense of us. You know, from when we move out these bubbles... And the bubbles merge, and there's back to community that sense of us, and that's a big part of well-being, it's a big sort of part of belonging, it's a big part of inclusion. You know, one of the challenges we faced as we came out, or say the first lockdown, is some autonomy was given, but some took it to the extreme and decided I'm gonna do everything. And that put other people at risk. And 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 so you know how we enable people to have autonomy, so those. You know, that trans domain aspect of mental health is going to be key in the classroom, okay, as much as outside. Um during lockdown one, I um did a, a series of podcasts, six podcasts with Dr. Kathy Weston. Um it's called Bounce Back. It's available on all the usual um channels. Uh, but we did six podcasts to help parents at home around um, you know, how to manage lockdown. And a lot of things we talked about, because um Kathy is a parenting specialist, so comes with that kind of... And I was talking about it from a teaching perspective and how we bring those two together. I think a lot of those things we still should keep applying and still thinking about, even as we come out of lockdown. We need to rebuild hope. We need to rebuild a sense of direction. A lot of the young people I spoke to during lockdown and as we were coming out, and I'm talking predominantly secondary now, um, they were saying to me, What's the point? Mm -hmm. Because they've experienced a situation where no one, no physical human being could do anything. This invisible virus took control. Now, where we would hope it would inspire, some children have been inspired younger in primary. I'm seeing a lot of kids saying, I'm going to grow up and be a doctor or a bioscientist and I'm going to find solutions to this kind of thing, so it never affects us again. I want to be in leadership so that we can, not we can, you know, in business, so I can create um, a cure for this or, you know, I can create some sort of support for this or, you know, those kind of aspirations I'm seeing a lot more in primary. In secondary, we're seeing a lot more despondency around, so what's the point behind this? And so we've got to understand where children are at, and not all of them are going to communicate this even straight away. As I said, we're, we're with that bit of that onion, and so... When I've spoken and I've led trainee sessions this year, academic year, one of the things I've, I've, I've said that if you take nothing else away from my sessions, keep asking your students, your children, your pupils, what did lockdown mean for you? What did COVID-19 and this experience mean for you? And we keep drilling down. And I think teachers amongst themselves need to do that. Um, the current cohort of trainees and NQTs, they are historical you know, no one else has been through the training and their induction year through this kind of series of lockdown and bubbles and that. So, in years to come, they will have historic stories to tell for oh, yeah. their children and their grandchildren. But actually, even they need to process. We all do. We, it's it's a healing process that will need to happen. Senko Wellbeing has been on my heart since 2009 and 2016. So four years ago, I wrote a book. Which is a free ebook called Take Control of Your Time. It is for Senkos because Senkos were struggling with um, their time management. But the forward is actually written by an NQT. So the book isn't about a one size fits all. It's actually five activities that you work through to discover who you are, how you operate best, what matters to your well being, how do you function around that, and then creating some boundaries and frameworks to support yourself. In your role. I've I was a teacher, um, senior leader, Senko. I had a number of hats. Um, as an advisory teacher, as a school improvement officer, I never work after 5 30 and I don't work weekends. It's my boundary. That's because for me that's family and friends time. And because I've set that, it makes me more productive when I am at school or when I am doing. And some people like to work in the evenings, so and that's okay some prefer the mornings there's no right or wrong about it but you can't do both ends and I think people burn out when they try and start doing the morning and the night shift so just uh you know an encouragement to um the trainees who may be listening in or the mentors who could suggest it the five principles in that book could be applied to anyone and the NQT story is the forward is really worth reading because she's talking five years on from um so I met her as an NQT Uh, the NQT said to me they're struggling so I worked through these five things with them and five years on they're writing their story how it saved them from leaving the profession just by putting structures in place so Sally's book other things I would really encourage our trainees to invest in their well-being from now not when the when the catastrophe hits so to speak
0: absolutely Anita, we—I I have a feeling that we we could probably talk for the whole day until five thirty, and we're not going to do that because it's important that we we carry on with other things. Um, this this has been just an absolutely wonderful. Um, discussion that that we've had and you've told us um, so many things to kind of whetter the appetite of of going away and having a read of your book um, maybe going to listen to podcasts that you've been involved in um, and we'll we'll put some links in the show notes about um, how you can access all of these various things here Um, it's it's been an absolute joy Um, for those associate teachers who are listening in now um, I've got good news for you which is that Anita will be coming back to join us on our um, Send Super Thursday later on this term Um, and so we'll be able to hear a little bit more um from there. Um, but um, it's just been great. And I think that the message of hope that you've you've done um here we are at the start of 2021. Um, is a as, as good a set of new year's resolutions for us all that we could possibly possibly take at this stage so Anita, thank you so much for your time we really look forward to working with you again um later on this term and um, i thoroughly thoroughly recommend to everybody have a good read of anita's um book um, there'll be lots of other things that we could talk about um, and potentially we might do um at some point in the future because it's just been a joy thank you so much thank you my pleasure too